Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. everyone and welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. We are your podcast of music discovery. We are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Uh, please be sure to check out their host of offerings at pantheonpodcasts.com. We just recently started to make this available as a video podcast about oh, yeah. one episode ago. Right. It's mostly the same podcast you get when you listen to it uh, wherever you listen to your podcast, but you get to see our shining faces and fancy graphics and a little window into our process. Uh, you can find a link to that at our website. That's audiojudo.com. Uh, if you are a little tired of the albums that Kyle and I choose, there is a way that you can make sure that we choose the album that you love. Yes, there is. Kyle, how would they go about doing something like well, that? Well, you can sign up for our Patreon. Uh, if you go to patreon.com forward slash audiojudo, we have two tiers. So the uh, regular tier is called the Front Row Seats tier. It's five bucks a month. Uh, and for that, you get two-day early access to all of the episodes. A shout-out to uh, – excuse me, a shout-out on future episodes is a loyal producer. Some bonus mini-episodes called Judo Chops that come out in the weeks in between regular episodes. And you'll also get some occasional bonus content. Uh, probably a little bit more of that coming up because of all the video stuff we've been doing. Um, usually, we have to – it's stuff that we had to cut out of episodes because we were running a little long or we got off on a tangent or I – farted it uh, happens it happens however like matthew was saying if you want to choose the direction we go in for a whole episode you can become a backstage pass patron that is a little more expensive it's 20 dollars a month however for that you get all of the front row seats tier stuff plus you get a very special personalized gift and the chance to co-host an audio judo episode on the album of your choice that benefit activates after one year of patronage at that tier and can only be activated once so yep we have we've done one of those. We have two coming up pretty quickly. Well, yeah. in the next year, let's say. Yeah, one coming up quickly, and then one's probably a few months away. Yeah, but this week we return to the 1970s and the progressive rock classic "Songs from the Wood" by Jethro Tull. Kyle, did you know any of this record before we started? Uh, I have heard some of these songs before, yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> I've heard of Jethro Tull before. I feel like you're nonplussed already. You want me to uh, jump ahead to the part where I I, 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 I wrote some uh, more detailed notes here? Should you we do that first, or do you want to wait a little bit? It depends on what the so, detailed notes are. Well, Matthew, <laughs> uh, I, I got to tell you this. Uh, let's do it before we start. Let's okay. Do it we, right. I hate Jethro Tull. Oh, so Sweet I, Jesus, this is going to be awesome. I I apologize to Jethro Tull fans because here's the thing. I, I cannot stand them. Yes. I, they, it is like fingers on a chalkboard to me. Every single bar of every song, it just rubs me the wrong way. Aqualung is my least favorite song of all time. And oh it my just, gosh, it this is going to be the bores best into episode my, in history. Bores into my head like that thing from uh, Wrath of Khan. It gets oh, yeah, in that Chekhov's little worm? head and it's like, yeah, right, right. that's hey, Aqualung. And it's just... <laughs> Uh, oh my I, god! I I should like them. I I should love them. They, by all accounts, this is a type of band I should love. They have all the elements of a band that I should enjoy. Great musical abilities. They're a little bit eccentric with their music styles. True prog rock. Yeah, uh, uh, and they seem uh, like a band uh, that should slot right into my wheelhouse, if you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> but I can't stand them. Uh, 
Should we start with the uh, the skinny little silver elephant uh, in the room? No, 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 no. I know what you're talking about. We'll get there. We're... You want to talk about the flute right away? Let's talk about the flute okay. right away. You know why? Because uh, much like your opinion on the saxophone, yeah, uh, I don't like. I don't think the flute has any place in rock music. So did you There's... feel that way about uh, the flute in Genesis when we did? Because there was flute in Selling uh, England by the Pound. Yes, there was, and I, I didn't care for it. Really? Again, I, I, so here's my thing. There You're are a few, there opinion. are a few exceptions. If it's part of a big orchestral orchestral piece, fine. All right. If it's a one-off, like, oh, hey, we had this song where we brought in a, a flautist to to accent the song. Flautist. Flautist. Yeah, fine, fine. <laughs> that that all works for me. But it is when when it is the premier instrument on an entire album, not not even just an album, it is the premier instrument for an entire band. Uh, no, thank you, sir. Mm. I don't. And I, don't... I take I take umbrage to that because I don't believe it. It is the instrument. It is a complementary instrument and an instrument that is used. In most of the songs, but if you listen to the catalog forward and back, the acoustic guitar and the guitar are the dominant instrument. But if you ask anybody out there, like, hey, what's the number one instrument in Jethro? So, oh, the flute. Well, that just because they the identify flute. it all the time, that's because they see him. And again, I do not mean any any disrespect to flautists oh, in man, saying this. You are, I, you are throwing I, down I against, am probably going to get all kinds of angry. You're throwing down against flautists. flautists. You're throwing down against uh, people that appreciate uh, uh, 14th century styled rock and roll. True. Like, you know. I'm going to float it, throw down again here, too. I don't like Ian Anderson. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Uh, he just puts off a weird eccentric vibe that I don't And how I don't do you, you love eccentric vibes? I love eccentric vibes, but for some reason his is just it's Oh, creepy. this is going to be this is going to be He might and again, I got to get this out. He he might for all I know be a great person in your life. Maybe he does a bunch of charitable things. Maybe he's a wonderful person. He is. I don't care for him. Uh I don't he, he just every time I see him talk, every time We're going to have to slog our way through this then. Yeah. It, it, and don't worry, I only have 13 pages of material to oh, go goody. through. <laughs> <laughs> also, the only time your foot should go up on something Captain Morgan style is when you have felled a mighty beast or when you need more leverage for mid-coital maneuvers, not to play a flute. So you haven't listened to all of the songs because A, plenty of slaying of the beast and B, oh, plenty of post-coital maneuvers. I have listened to all the songs, <laughs> but he's not doing those things on stage. He's still playing the flute. <laughs> I'm saying if you actually do those things, put your foot up on something. If you're on stage playing the flute and singing about those things, don't put your foot up on things. Next up, uh, d d d well, Matthew, you're going to keep going. We I'm going to keep going. I got to get all this out. Jethro Tull is some next level nerd shit. This is the stuff that nerds make fun of other nerds for listening to you. Matthew, I've known for quite some time that you were a nerd, a secret nerd, a hide it under your baseball and golf sports <laughs> stuff nerd, but you are a nerd nonetheless, and you expose yourself here today, sir. Yes, I do. Jethro Tull is the nerdiest band I can think of, and yes, I'm including all the nerdy bands that make fun of, or I'm sorry, that write exclusively uh, I'm going to uh, expose myself right here on a video episode. Whoa. <laughs> I'm including all the bands that make exclusive Harry Potter content. Uh, very nerdy. Jethro nerdy is too. Jethro Tull, excuse me, is too nerdy for a Dungeons and Dragons session. People would walk out. Uh, uh, Larpers, Matthew. You, bullshit. Larpers make bullshit. fun of Jethro Tull. Shit, you got some strong opinions. They play this. They play Jethro Tull to clear out the end of the Ren Fair. Oh my god. They're like, god. we got to get rid of some people. Aqualung, go. 
And then, of course, uh, well, says everybody, at least they can't get any nerdier. And then Jethro Toll says, uh, hold my meat, dear fellow. Uh, and they switch from prog rock to folk rock. <laughs> yeah, folk rock. It's not even prog rock anymore on this album. It's folk rock. Yeah, damn right. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, I, I don't like Jethro Toll particularly a whole lot. Really? Because I didn't gather that. You didn't gather that from no, all that? No, I haven't figured that out yet. So here's what I did for this album, Matthew. I tried to look at facts. I tried to to take things as as based on people's musical abilities, based on their lyric writing abilities, and not think of this as necessarily a a Jethro Tull album, but oh. try to look at it from an outside standpoint and say, what are the musical merits? Of so this? I listen to it like, or you listen to it like I listen to an Oasis record. Exactly. Yes. Um, I, I don't know how successful I was. I'm sure some of my uh, uh, opinions seeped through. Um. But I tried. All right. So I, I'm sorry to get that all out right at the beginning. That's fine. But I figured I better be honest about it up front rather than okay. just be like, yes, of course I love them. <laughs> That's fine. So I've been a marginal fan of this band and this particular record for a very long time, probably 36 years or so. Uh, it includes a couple of Toll favorites, but the whole album is a fantastic exercise in songwriting and concept. And we've talked about concept rep records before. And we always seem to get bogged down in the what is a concept. Yeah. Is a record based on a particular theme or story? Or can it be, as I think it is in the case with this record, a sound concept? Uh, while this album doesn't follow a lyrical thread specifically, although there are lyrical similarities between some songs, it does follow a musical thread, an overall sound that defines the record. And therein lies the concept. But before we talk about what I consider to be a wonderful album. Oh, we should talk about the band that produced it. Sure. And you're going to have to. So uh, Jeth enough. Jethro Tull was initially formed under a different name, which we'll get to in a minute, back in <laughs> 1963, when original members John, uh, Jeffrey Hammond, John Evan, and Ian Anderson put together the unit after attending grammar school together in uh, Blackpool, England. Did you say John Evans or John Evan? Evan. Because it was originally John Evans. Did he change it? He did. We'll get to that in a second, though. Okay. Uh, that original incarnation consisted of Hammond on bass, Evan on drums, and Anderson on acoustic guitar. And they played some local bars and clubs in uh, 1964. They had one of their many, many personnel changes. And by many, I mean a lot over yeah. the last 59 years. Uh, Evan switched to Oregon and they recruited Barrymore Barlow, at that time just known as Barry Barlow, to join the group on the drums. Um, they then recruited Chris Riley to join the band as another guitarist and they became... The John Evan Band. Yeah. And, you know, they actually named it the John Evan Band, even though his name was John Evans. He liked the sound of it so much, he had his name legally changed to John Evan. Oh, that's smart. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and they played soul music, or what would pass for soul music in the early 60s in Middle England. Right. <laughs> there were numerous personnel changes over the ensuing three years, and they also moved from Middle England to a few miles outside of London. Uh, they signed a management deal and had a few bookings, but they were very, very rarely ever invited back to play. Uh, this led to them changing the name of the band all the time so the club wouldn't recognize the name and they could get booked again. Which is pretty smart. It honestly. is smart. Uh, at this time, they went by names like Navy Blue, Ian Henderson's Bag of Nails, and Candy Colored Rain. <laughs> that last one I don't mind so much. Right? I think that's kind of nice. I read in an interview somewhere that Ian recalled uh, – he walked into a venue one night, didn't realize what the band name was supposed to be. So he had to look at a poster, figure out what name he didn't recognize, and then say, ah, that's us. That's us. 
<laughs> and the um, imposter names of the band were often supplied by their management or booking agent. And one of them happened to be a history buff. And he deemed them Jethro Tull. And the name stuck because it was the first time a club owner ever asked them to come back and play again. Do you know uh, anything about Jethro Tull? Oh, I the certainly man? do. Jethro Tull Jr., the agriculturist, not a kid's version of this band. Correct. Yeah. He uh, fascinating individual perfected a horse drawn seed drill mm -hmm. in seventeen hundred that allowed farmers to sow their their seeds in nice neat rows, and then he later also developed a horse drawn hoe. <laughs> I was about to say the list of uh, the list of his accomplishments. Uh, uh, I have to. It's, it's, it's hard for me to say without giggling. Uh, drill husbandry, <laughs> drill plow, uh, turnip drill. Uh, hoeing by hand. Drill husbandry. Uh, horse hose. Uh, and he published a work titled The Horse Hoeing Husbandry, colon, or an essay on the principles of tillage and vegetation in 1731. Ooh, tillage. Tillage. I like that word. Tillage. <laughs> sounds, sounds disgusting. Right? I think it's pretty, a pretty funny in conversation. Uh, when I've talked about this band in my life, people are always like, Jethro Tull. I like that guy. Aqualum. <laughs> yeah, it's not a guy. And I know you don't watch Friends, Kyle. I don't oh, think I, you did. Did I you? I did actually watch okay. Friends, yes. But uh, but there's a great scene when the group is discussing their little black books of sexual conquests, uh, and they're going through Phoebe's book, and one of them says, Jethro Tull? Phoebe, they're a band. And she replies, yes. Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually just a great moment. Oh, that's pretty good. Uh, anyways, we will come to find out as we proceed down this road. It, uh, it's very, it very much became a one-man band, and it makes sense for people to think that Ian Anderson is Jethro Tull because of the amount of influence he would eventually wield in that band. But we aren't quite there yet. So we are in 1967, and they've just recorded a single called Sunshine Day, not the song from the Brady Bunch a few years later. They also recorded a B-side called Aeroplane, and for some reason, they are credited in that song as Jethro Toe. <laughs> T-O-E. I saw that. <laughs> and there was some speculation that it was done specifically to try to screw them out of money. Yep. But yeah, who I, knows? Yeah, just to avoid paying royalties. It's also an interesting case where the counterfeit version of that album is correct. It says Jethro Tull on it. Yeah. Uh, and the the real version says Jethro, Jethro Toe. <laughs> so it was about this time that Anderson would start to play the flute as he had determined he couldn't play the guitar, quote, as well as Clapton. Uh, and when he first took the stage with it, he had been playing it for two weeks. And he would say that every night was like a crash course in the flute. Sink or swim, I suppose. Uh, and he also started wearing one of the other defining characteristics about his stage persona for the early part of their career, the long trench coat that his father gave him. And he struck a memorable picture, long hair, long beard, trench coat, and flute. A wayward, homeless, traveling minstrel. So their big break came in 1968 at the National Jazz and Blues Festival when they brought the house down. The crowd loved them, and the press loved them, and it provided them with the opportunity to record their first record, 1968's This Was. It was released in October, eventually got to number 10 on the UK chart. That's a pretty impressive debut. That's not bad. They continued to cycle through a number of musicians, even having Mick Taylor, later of the Rolling Stones, and Tony Iommi, later of, the, of Black Sabbath, perform with them a few times before settling on a new guitarist, Martin Barr, and he would be with them for the next 40 years. Uh, after, so just a little while. Yeah, just yeah, he, occasional. He's probably just still temporary. Uh, after Barr joined, 
they toured Scandinavia with I don't know a guitarist named uh, Jimi Hendrix. Maybe I believe it's pronounced Jimi. Jimi Hendrix went on an extensive tour of the U.S. supporting Led Zeppelin and sounds Vanilla too heavy Fudge. to fly. <laughs> with the Led Zeppelin, yeah, yeah, it'll sink like a lead balloon. Their managers approached Anderson, who by this point had become the primary songwriter, and asked him to write a hit single as if it were that easy. You know, just do it. And then he wrote Living in the Past, which got to number three in the UK and number 11 in the US. So he did it. So he did it. So they do it. And he did it. Could you do this? Yeah, no problem. I can do it. So their next album, 1969's Stand Up, quickly rose to number one on the UK chart, the only record by the band to do that. I um, will say, fantastic cover design on that. Oh, yeah. I love the pop-up the idea pop up, yeah. where you open you open the book and the band pops up out of it. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool for 69. There. Right. Uh, so Anderson was now the main songwriter and ostensibly in charge of the band. And the band headlined the Newport Jazz Festival and would begin their own headlining tour of the US. And they were huge. They were invited to play Woodstock. And Anderson refused, <laughs> afraid to be forever associated with the hippie movement and expected to play that style of music for the rest of their careers. John Evan would return to the band at this point after his group fizzled out, and he became a session musician for Toll's 1970 album, Benefit. That album would get to number four in the UK, number 11 in the US, and saw them filling 20,000-seat arenas and become a premier live act. They also played to their largest crowd, several hundred thousand, at the Isle of Wight Festival in 1970. The same tour saw them become the only second rock and roll act ever at that point to play Carnegie Hall, the only other being the Beatles. Wow. So there's some cash, cachet. 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 In 1971, Jeffrey Hammond returned to the group after leaving in one of the many personnel changes, and he would be there to record their next album, the first of the band's progressive period, the classic record Aqualung. <laughs> So the band moved to Switzerland at this point because of the UK's ridiculously high tax laws made famous by George Harrison's tax man. Mm -hmm. Aqualung would become the first top 10 US album for the band, peaking at number seven. But Anderson was annoyed because critics kept referring to the album as a concept record. And a few of them are related, naturally, but not the whole thing. Now, if you know anything about Anderson, who I will talk about at length during this episode, and you don't care for, he is incredibly intelligent, verbose sarcastic and not afraid to say what he thinks no matter the outcome and see i think that's what actually rubs me rubs me weird about him but please continue he said if you if they want to call it a concept record i will give them the mother of all concept records instead <laughs> so 1972's what go ahead i say i do i actually respect this the fact that he was just like oh you want a fucking concept album here Bam! And just pushes 19, the mother of all concept albums. 1972's Thick as a Brick consisted of 43 minutes of continuous music spread over two sides. Two sides. There's a concept for you. Yeah. And it would be the first album to be number one of theirs in the United States. Also heavily influenced by the comedy of Monty Python, which Absolutely. is great. Very appreciative of Monty Python. In 73, they would travel to Chateau de Hourville in France, a, a place popularized by Elton John and the Rolling Stones to record their next album. And they hated that location. <laughs> they dubbed the recordings the Chateau Disaster Tapes and headed back to England to record instead. They salvaged some of the material. Anderson rewrote and reworked it, a lot of it uh, for the release of 1973's A Passion Play, another single piece of music. And again, it reached number one in the US and sold very well, but the critics hated it. So as an aside, they released the Disaster Tapes in 1988 as part oh. of a compilation. I have it. And I love it. And I'm not sure what they hated about it, but it sounds amazing to me. 
So it doesn't sound that disastrous at all. No. Hmm. But so impacted by the negative press was Anderson that he shut himself off from the media completely. So even as they began to get less popular with the press, the fans loved them and continued to buy their records in droves and see them in concert. 1974's War Child reached number two on the U.S. charts charts and contains one of my favorite tracks by them, Bungle in the Jungle. Which, when I was small, I thought was Bunghole in the Jungle. (laughs) And my mother got pissed when I sang it in the car one day. Really? Yeah. She got really upset. I just said bunghole. I was like, Mom, it's just a word. And she's like, oh, you that's a filthy, disgusting word. Don't say maybe that that's ever what, again. Maybe you got in trouble and that's Maybe that's why. why maybe hate. that's why I don't like Jethro Tull. Maybe that's it. So 1975 saw them- packing a lot today. <laughs> saw them release Minstrel in the Gallery, an album that would start to bounce between soft acoustic pieces and loud arena rock ready songs. In 76, they would release Too Old to Rock and Roll, Too Young to Die, another concept record about an aging rock star. It would also introduce the personnel that would be present for the next record, the record we're going to talk about today, 1977's Songs from the Wood. Songs from the Wood would represent a huge shift in the sound of the band as they shifted from these hard blues sounds, albeit with flute in most of the songs, to a much more English countryside pastoral approach, like a callback to medieval times. Yes, I would agree with that. And for the band, and for the band, a callback to an earlier sound with a much more mature approach. Uh, They had recorded their last two records in Monaco, and they were eager to record this one in England. Their last few records had been poorly received by the critics, and Anderson wanted to escape it all and headed for the woods, for the English country, and that's where his inspiration came from. Uh, The album was recorded in late 1976 at Morgan Studios in London. Morgan Studios was used by every huge British name over the years. Zeppelin, Floyd, Sabbath, McCartney... All recorded albums or parts of albums there. Uh, Looks like the last thing actually recorded there was 1989's The Stone Roses Mm. album. So it was producing high quality records right up until the bitter end. Yeah. Um, Do do you know what happened? I I didn't look it up. They just shut it down. They just shut it down. That's unfortunate. Yep. Unlike other Toll records to this point, Anderson was eager to have input from all the other bandmates. A rarity, to say the least. His other bandmates in this classic lineup from the band include Barrymore Barlow on drums, Dee Palmer on piano and synths, Martin Barr on guitars, John Evan on piano and synths, and John Glasscock on bass. <laughs> Glasscock. As it would turn out, the band would list this as one of their favorite recording experiences of their run, as everyone enjoyed being near home and being able to contribute to the album. Palmer would contribute quite a bit as he introduced the band to the portative pipe organ, a sound that seemed to transport the record back to medieval times. They also introduced older percussion instruments like nakers and the tabor, uh, things we'll talk about as they come up on the record. Uh, One of my favorite descriptions of this record comes from loudersound.com when they were doing an interview with Anderson a few years ago on his 70th birthday. They led into the interview with this description of the record, the cover, and the time surrounding it. Songs from the Wood was Tull's 10th studio album, and both commercially and creatively, one of their most successful. It was the first they made after singer and band leader Ian Anderson had quit London and gone to live in a rural idyll. Holed up in his 16th century Buckinghamshire farmhouse with his new wife, Shania Leonard, a former ballet dancer, Anderson conjured a vanished England steeped in myth and legend. He then set it to music that was all at once archaic, playful, and plangent. To welcome the listener into this world, there was Anderson on the album's cover, 
pictured as a middle-ages poacher, like a character from picaresque fiction. He seemed to care not a jot about the encroaching, marauding menace of punk. Kyle, do you have particulars on this record? Uh, I've got a couple. Okay. Uh, Number eight in the U.S. Billboard charts, number 13 on the U.K. charts, and very liked by critics. Um, The critics really enjoyed this album. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, that's all I got. All right. So before we move to the cover art section, it's story time. Ooh. And then haven't had one of these in a while. Now you're going to make me look like an ass, aren't you? No, not at all. So in 1983, now I'm not going to do that to you. 1983, I was entering sixth grade. Uh, It was the first year at a new school as I was headed into middle school. I knew most of my friends from elementary would be joining me, but it was also a merge school. Three other elementary schools in the area fed into it. Okay. So there would be a lot of new faces. And with that came the natural apprehension and excitement. You know, you don't know what to expect. That first day, as I went from class to class, I kept seeing the same kid in every one of my classes. A kid I did not know. English and social studies, first and second hour, he was there. Reading, third hour, he was there. Math and science in Mr. Beginsky's room in fourth and fifth hour, he was there. Surely he wouldn't be in my sixth hour class, right? Band. But not just band. Brass and percussion. In he walks. And of course, he heads right to the drum section. At the time, remember this is 1983, and the time of glittery belt buckles that had the names of rock bands on them, and I was wearing my brother's Rush belt buckle. He walks up and says, you like Rush? And the friendship was set. This would turn out to be my very best friend, Joel. We became inseparable at school. Outside of school, I saw him rarely because he was into sports and I or I was into sports and he was into computers and stuff. But his dad had a laser disc player and had the original Star Wars. Oh yeah! So I did go over there occasionally and watch that because that was fucking cool. But we were like brothers, separated at birth. We had every class together. We had lunch together. It was like we shared one brain. <laughs> As the school year wound down, uh, we went and saw the first Ghostbusters movie at the theater for my twelfth birthday. Hung out every once in a while during the summer before I made my usual jaunt up north in the pop-up camper with the family. Finished the baseball season and told him that I would see him on the first day of school. And when we reconvened back at school, he told me that Rush wasn't his favorite band anymore. I was heartbroken. It made no sense, right? I was gone for a month. (laughs) It was like my cat died. How could this be? And then he said his new favorite band was Jethro Tull. And my eyes boggled. At the time, what I knew about Jethro Tull was Aqualung and the weird guy from MTV. So on MTV around that time, the only video of Tulls they were playing was a live video from like 1981 with the whole band in white jumpsuits with the little red A on them. And there's this crazy looking guy with a flute running around all over the stage, standing with his leg propped up on his other leg. Fans of Tull will know what I'm talking about. Anderson's classic pose. And he's leaving Rush for this guy? I was flabbergasted and hurt. And it seriously fractured our friendship. And why not? I was 12. I wasn't very mature. But I was determined to figure this out, so I ran home, rifled through my brother's tapes, and found this one, Songs from the Wood. And I listened to it. And <laughs> not impressed. Uh, he was abandoning the thunder of Rush for the minstrels and court gestures and flutes. Are you kidding? I put the tape away and got on with my life. Then Joel and I made up in eighth grade and ended up seeing Rush later that year with my brother. Such is the life and friendship of 12-year-old boys. After eighth grade, we went to different high schools and pretty much never saw each other again, except for having lunch together once in 2000 when we reconnected, but it was brief. But then in ninth grade, I was looking to listen to new stuff, expanding my horizons, so to speak. I had matured a little and maybe I was ready for it this time. So I listened again and my mind was open. I went on an all-encompassing toll tear for years. I bought 
records, CDs, compilations, and really found something that I enjoyed for a long time. They would never, ever be as important to me as Rush or Marillion, but they cemented a seat at the table, and I have Joel to thank for that. He was just ahead of his time. So thank you, Joel. And that's why we're talking about this record. Fascinating. Today. The cover art. Would you... uh, so, it's a, it's a picture of Ian Anderson sitting with his own ego. I'm sorry. I mean, with his hunting dog. Like you said, he's supposed to be sort of a... a, a he's a poacher. He's, he's a, a poacher. He's a, he's a hunter. Yes, thank you. Uh, he's crouched down next to a pot of something boiling over an open fire in the woods. Uh, it appears he just, saw, he just shot some birds for dinner. Mm-hmm. Pheasants, probably. Yeah, probably pheasants. Uh, the text reads, Jethro Tull uh, with kitchen prose, gutter rhymes, and divers. Mm-hmm. Below that, songs from the wood. Mm-hmm. Uh, the back is a stump with a record arm and needle on top to make it look like the wood grain is being played like a record. Yeah, yeah. Do you get it, Matthew? I do. Like you're getting songs from the from wood. From the wood. It's a like it's you're double getting meaning. Songs from the wood. It's double funny. meaning. Funny. <laughs> There's a poem. Yeah. On the back. Do you, Do you want to read? No, it? no. You, you go ahead. All right. Uh, Let me bring you all things refined. Uh, galliards and lute songs served in chilling ale. Greetings, well met fellow. Hail. I am the wind to fill your sail. I am the cross to take your nail, a singer of these ageless times with kitchen prose and gutter rhyme. It's the lyrics from Songs from the Wood. Indeed it is. And it's always fun to watch people argue online about what stuff actually is. So as I'm sure you found out, this is a photo mm-hmm. on the album cover yes. with painted embellishments. But look online and everyone is convinced that this is a photorealistic painting oh, yeah. done by a gentleman named J.L. Lee. The reason they are convinced about it is because in the credits for the record, it says painting by J.L. Lee. Yeah. But there are, exist several photos from the same photo session that the band used for the tour book and subsequent releases. Yeah. And as someone noted, Anderson has a very developed sense of humor and he liked toying with his fans. So. Well, I kind of took this to mean too, because I, I found that same controversy. Yeah. And I took it to kind of mean, well, if you're releasing an album from ye oldie England- Photography didn't exist, so of course you're going to call it a painting, because what else could it be? Ye oldie? Ye oldie, with an E. Also, uh, Keith Howard is credited as the woodcutter. Yes. And there is so much speculation online about, like, well, maybe it's a woodcut print, and maybe it's a... And it's like, no, he cut the tree down that they used for the photograph. It's no nerdy like, that no nerdier than than a lot of other nerdy stuff. Yeah, it's it's nerdy. It's ner- it's very nerdy. I don't get quite that nerdy, but it is nerdy. It is very nerdy. Uh, the back cover is designed by a Shirt Sleeve Studios. Yeah, uh, which is a design firm founded in 1967 by Nancy Founts and Malcolm Fowler. Mm-hmm. They did a whole bunch of uh, album art, a lot of good looking uh, design pieces and stuff. There's a whole archive online if you want to go look them up. It's a great cover. I love it. Yeah, it's it's. I will again. You don't like it. Not it's my fine. thing, but uh, not a bad cover. So, do you have any more before we, what? No, let's, let's take a little break and uh, we'll come back and do track by track unless you got something else. No, before, yeah, that's good. That's right, good. We'll be right back. All right. Don't Smother Nature is a one-stop shop for sustainable home goods. They do the research to compile all the best and most affordable options and group them into a convenient online location. With smooth navigation, helpful support, and easy returns and tracking, they make transitioning you and your home to be more Earth-friendly a simple and accessible process. They just had their grand opening, so browse their extensive catalog now at DontSmotherNature.com. That's DontSmotherNature.com. When you're smiling... Hey, you. It's me, Michael Bublé. 
for bubbly, sparkling water. Bubbly is crisp, light, and refreshing. It's got taste, and it's perfect for any occasion. Keep on smiling. Kind of like my voice, but in a can. No calories, no sweeteners, all smiles. The whole world smiles with you. Bubbly, crack a smile. Songs from the wood. So now that I've suppressed my anger to to beat you up, <laughs> I feel we're ready to proceed. So the title track. What we should have done now that we're videoing this, we, I should have gone and put on like eye, black like eye makeup and then be like, we'll be right back. And just come back and every question I'm like, yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. No, I was wrong earlier. I loved every second of it. That's smart. Right? So Songs from the Wood is the title track. And here's a little piece of it right here. Let me bring you songs from the woods To make you feel much better than you could know Better than you could know Dust you down from tip to toe Dust you down from tip to toe Show you how the garden grows Show you how the garden grows Hold you steady as you go Hold steady as you join the chorus if you can It'll make you an honest man Let me bring you love from the fields Poppies, red and roses filled with summer rain To heal the wound and still the pain The threatens again and again As we drag down every lover's lane Lifelong So it's amazing to me how an album can make you feel like you are in a certain place. Music is really good at creating mood, making you feel a certain way, whether that be happy or sad or excited or whatever. It can even make you feel like it's a certain time, like a summertime song or a piece of classical music that sounds like the Victorian era. Uh, but it is rare when music makes you feel like you are in a certain place. One other specific album, Selling England by the Pound by Genesis, has a similar effect. This album just feels like it was set, recorded, and placed in Middle England, somewhere near the forest, with little animals flitting about. <laughs> and that was the intention. You know, Anderson came into the studio with a lot of the framework for the album written, and then allowed his bandmates to write stuff for it. But at the time, Anderson had moved into the country with his new wife and was living a simpler lifestyle. At some point during the last tour, he had been given a book by one of their managers, Joe Lustig, a brash New Yorker. And it was a book about English lore and legend. And while out at his farm, he began to pour over the book and live the country lifestyle. And the album began to take shape in his head. Do you have something? I was just going to say, uh, uh, Ian Anderson said this of that. He said, uh, quote, I wrote songs from the wood based on elements of folklore and fantasy tales and traditions of the British rural environment. Our PR guy, Joe Lustig, had given me a book about English folklore as a Christmas present, and I thumbed through it and found lots of little interesting ideas and characters and stories and things I decided to evolve into a series of songs. Mm, there you go. He also called it unashamedly twee uh, in an interview with Malcolm Dome for Loudersound.com, which makes me want to punch something. Why, he's just British. <laughs> he's British. Unashamedly twee. <laughs> no. I feel if any other British person said that, you'd think it was hilarious. No, I'm sorry. I don't like the word twee. <laughs> sorry, twee people. I don't. 
So my favorite part of this song are the wonderful vocal harmonies that set the song in motion. That is very nice at the beginning, that sort of layered vocalization. Right. That, that is very nice. Those were all performed by Anderson, and they are so beautiful, and it is part of what transport you to that part in England, that, that place in England. Uh, interesting enough, Anderson, because he is also the producer of all their records, likes to work quickly, and as he puts it, is a penny-pinching Scot. <laughs> so he had a lot Racist. of- he allotted only four weeks for recording. Uh, and while this album seems like it's every bit the country album, recorded in the country album, it was actually recorded in Morgan Studios, like we mentioned, which is pretty close to the city. Anderson said this about the recording experience. I can remember coming out of Morgan each night and checking under Martin's car for bombs. These were the days <laughs> when the IRA's terrorism had extended itself and the politicians, the military, and the police were targets. There was a certain concern that people in the public eye, such as rock and pop stars, might be next on a list for a showcase act. So that's really strange to think about, because this is not the first time we have talked about an album that was being recorded that makes mention of threats and bomb concerns. Yeah. We have a tendency to think about musicians and stuff like this as insulated and kind of happening in a vacuum. They don't take into account that the world is still revolving and operating while they are making their art, and sometimes those two things intertwine. This song was released as a single in New Zealand, but it did not chart. No matter. It's a fantastic song, and Ian Anderson said this was one of his top 10 favorite songs in the Tull catalog. Do you have any information on why it was only released as a single in New Zealand? That no. seems like such a weird choice to me. Yeah, I couldn't find it. It must have been a weird label thing. Somebody somebody must have been like, this is going to sell great in New Zealand. Market now. research. Yeah. We have the research. It says New Zealand. It'll be huge. No. So a couple of things lyrically about this song. Uh, one of the lines in the song is galliard and lute songs mm -hmm. uh, served in chilling ale. Great line. A galliard is a dance that was popular in the 16th century. It is an athletic dance characterized by leaps, jumps, hops, and other similar figures. The main feature that defines a galliard step is a large jump after which the dancer lands with one leg ahead of the other. It's hmm. weird. The jump is called a cadence, and the final landing is called the posture. The lute, which you mentioned, of course, is a stringed instrument popular around the same time frame that was the predecessor of the modern guitar. Uh, I always love those little nuggets of information. Hmm. Uh, I knew what a lute was, obviously, but I had to uh, look up galliard. Yeah, I had not heard of galliard before this either. Galliard. Like, galliard? What the hell is that? Uh, it's a dance. It's a dance. Now we know. Right? Jack in the Green? Jack in the Green. Do you know what Jack in the Green is? You go ahead. It's a British folk character that is supposed to represent the outdoors and the woods and the fields and the general British naturiness of, of Britain. UK equivalent of Smokey the Bear. There you go. That's the way I saw it described online as well. Uh, he's often portrayed as a bushy green giant. Picture somebody with a big beard for some reason and then very Something large. out of Tolkien. Yeah. Kind of like what a treant. Tom, Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil would be a good example of a Jack in the Green. <laughs> Yeah, and the whole theme of this song is about how humanity is moving farther away from nature, building motorways and power lines to tame the environment, and uh, that maybe we should reconsider that. Yeah, maybe it uh, may have been quite a bit ahead of its of its uh, day. Yeah, an environmental uh, song from the 70s. Right? Throwback for the band, perhaps a look forward as all the vocals and instrumentation on the track is played by Ian Anderson. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I had something cut my throat. What, just because he plays everything? This is it, no different it, than Sting to me. The, well, yeah. Sting has a huge ego. He too. does have a huge ego. Oh, you're not shitting. I'm not shitting all over him. Oh, I shit all over Sting all the time whenever <laughs> I have a chance. I have a sticker of Sting in the bottom of my toilet. Do you really? No. Oh. That so would be great. It's vocals, flute, acoustic guitar, mandolin, and whistle. 
the vocal style he uses on this song stands out in contrast to the sweet harmonies of Song from the Woods, something that you mocked earlier. He uses his gravelly voice, and it does change the flavor a little bit. It's the only song on the record like that, and it's played more of a folk song than a lot of the other tracks on the record. The only other one really similar to it is the last song, Fire at Midnight. Mm -hmm. So he's lamenting that the Jack and the Green won't have any place to dance anymore because we've fucked up the environment. Uh, the song sounds like this. Jack, do you never sleep as the green still run deep in your heart? Oh, oh. will these changing times motorways power lines keep us apart? Oh, oh. Well, I don't think so. I saw some rats trying through the pavements today. So, again, in the lyrics uh, are things that need to be researched a little. Mm -hmm. He mentions the rowan, oak, and holly tree. The oak and holly are self-explanatory. Uh, the rowan, however, took some research. The rowan is a shrub that's a member of the rose family. It produces berries that, back in the 15th century, was a common fruit consumed by the British. Uh, what's sad about this story is that over the last 45 years since this song was created... The Rowan has largely vanished from the English countryside. Oh, that's unfortunate. Pretty much making the song's predictions about the loss of the Jack and the Green accurate as hell. <laughs> uh, the other thing I had to look up was missile thrush. Uh, that is a bird common to Europe, so named because its primary diet is holly and mistletoe. Oh. It's like a Christmas bird. Interesting. Uh, it is known for having a loud song that carries even in windy or wet weather, earning it the nickname, oh, you'll love this, the Stormcock. Oh, because of course it's called that. <laughs> of course, it's got the word storm in there. That's disgusting. <laughs> you got anything about this one or uh, other than you no, hate it? No, that's all right. I don't hate <laughs> again. <laughs> not my favorite band. Not saying that I hate any of this. Wait, at the outset, you said I hate Jethro. I Tull. hate Jethro Tull. I know <laughs> it's not my favorite music. It's pretty specific in the hate. All right. <laughs> Cup of Wonder. Ooh. And good news, it starts with a flute. Such a great song. Great. <laughs> such a great, it's such a great song. One of the things I love most about how Jethro Tull writes, and more specifically Ian Anderson, are the syncopated musical parts that are sprinkled through the song. He matches the flute with the guitar, and they kind of dance around, which is a fitting description of it. Because again, it feels like you would be singing this inside a castle or a market square with all the townsfolk gathered around. Maybe that. Maybe I was. Maybe I was. Maybe I reincarnated. Maybe I was. Maybe. Uh, maybe I was alive back then, and that's why it like feels like home. I like it. Sound is just very distinctive, and the vocal lines that they use are really great as well. This is what it sounds like. December, sadness, a lie in August. Welcome, join the stir the cup that's ever 
talk about the lyrics for the song, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Song features some of the fantastic drum work that you will find all over this record, played wonderfully by Barry Moore Barlow. We'll talk about him for a second. So Barry Barlow played with Jethro Tull from 1971 to 1980, only leaving when the bass player John Glass- uh, Glasscock passed away unexpectedly. Very sad. Barlow was dubbed Barrymore by Anderson and was called the best drummer England ever produced by none other than Led Zeppelin drummer John Bonham. Wow. Right? That's 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 pretty high praise. In fact, after Bonham passed away, there were many rumors floating around that Barlow was to be his replacement. Hmm. But Zepp shut it down shortly before that happened, which is probably good. Barlow is one of the most creative drummers around and had a very successful session career after leaving Tull. And there's a great story about him on one of their first gigs. I don't know if you saw this. So for some reason, the police had just tear-gassed one of their concerts from <laughs> helicopters. You know, as you do. Outside of Red Rocks Amphitheater near Denver. <laughs> Fuck you, folk rock. Right? <laughs> never sure. Never sure why that happened. The Toll Bunch wasn't a particularly rowdy bunch, but whatever. Uh, and fearing they would be arrested, they hid under a blanket in a station wagon. And Barlow was heard to ask... Is it like this every night? <laughs> to which Anderson replied, as a general rule, only on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> which, uh, you know, you got to be funny. You got to appreciate it. So right off the bat in the lyrics, he mentions Beltane. Oh, yes. The Gaelic May Day Festival. Yeah, oh, you got information? I do. You it's go. Celebrated about halfway between the spring equinox and the summer solstice. Uh, it's often celebrated by having sex. So that's fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wee! Bell. <laughs> Bel, B-E-L, is the Celtic god of light who provides the sacred fire, known as the sun. Uh, and on Beltane, they bring blessings and protection for the following year. The cup of crimson wonder itself is supposed to represent birth, or more specifically, the womb. A cup of crimson wonder. Right? It's just a great line. Uh, see, I- You don't I like just, it? I just see nerds. I just see nerds like hitting on women who don't want to be hit on. Like, mayhaps another taker of mead, milady, before I doth fill the crimson cup of wonder. Like, just gross, weird. That's all I see in my head. And I can't every every time they say cup of crimson wonder, milady, how that? Ooh, I doth top my hat to you, wow. milady. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. All it's right. just weird for me. Okay. Milady. <laughs> Uh, moving on, as we should, to Hunting Girl. It's my favorite song in the record. And what do we have here, Kyle? Speaking of filling the Crimson Cup of Wonder, a uh, fuck song. It's a medieval fuck song. It's a medieval fuck song. And it's also a thinly veiled S&M fuck song yeah. with some pony play thrown in for good measure. Why not? If you've been with us for long, you know that Anderson is especially good at, he's especially good lyricist, but he loves the tongue in cheek cheek stuff and what you begin to learn about him as you listen to their entire catalog is how randy and horny this guy is apparently and he writes about it in such a way that is both entertaining and amusing yeah, well okay i don't know why you just you just like <laughs> shit musically this song is a jam now there are so <laughs> many great additions uh, from all the musicians there's a great double bass part by barlow the riff by martin Barr is superb and all the flute work is really good the star of the show. Questionable. Please continue. Star of the show is uh, bass player John Glasscock. Glasscock was only in the band from 76 to 79 when he passed away from a congenital, <coughs> excuse me, congenital heart defect. Uh, but his contributions were substantial. Not only was he the first person in Jethro Tull to sing harmony parts with Anderson, 
but he also played the acoustic guitar on stage, freeing up Anderson to play the flute and prance about as he liked to do. Mm, unfortunate. Richie Blackmore, legendary guitarist from Deep Purple and Rainbow, called Glasscock the best in the business. So there's a lot of high praise going around. He's well respected by his peers. Here's what the middle part of the song sounds like with all these wonderful musicians playing together. Describe that as unashamedly twee. It's just a really great composition. Now, if that keyboard, if that flute was being handled by a keyboard, would you be as essentially crappy oh, about man. it? I... If it were, if it were a uh, let's say a ARP synthesizer, or maybe I think, I think I would still be. Would you? I don't know. Yeah, yeah I feel like... I'm going to say maybe not. I'm I'm, I'm going to be honest here. Well, how did Ian Anderson hurt you? How did he I hurt you, know. Kyle? I don't know. <laughs> Aqua lung sucks. I can't. No, I'm just kidding. I, I mean, I don't. I don't how, care for it. But it just. How did he hurt? I don't know. I don't know how he hurt me, Matthew. But it just something has always rubbed me wrong about Jethro <laughs> Tull, and I can't get over it. Speaking of to rubbing, enjoy their, yeah. And now the lyrics. So you should not be surprised about this. When Anderson was the first, and as far as I know, only pop lyricist to put the word sperm in a song. Possibly yes. In Aqua lung, his sperms in the gutter, his loves in the sink. And he notoriously likes the double entendre. Later in their career, he sings the song Kissing Willie, mm -hmm. which is undoubtedly about oral sex, but is guised in this wonderful wordplay. This one has no wordplay, just creative writing. Anderson is just a regular guy when a hunting party comes upon him, replete with a beautiful young lady at the rear of the hunting pack. Anderson opens the gate for them and they go through, but she doesn't follow them. She instead stays behind for a roll in the woods. And she is high class. She's got a leather riding saddle, crop handle carved in bone. She is all that and a bag of chips. Or rabbit? What would they eat back then? All that and a bag of stew? Could be a stew. <laughs> I don't know. Bag of- uh, Bag of moldy bread? Moldy bread. I don't know. Yes. But taters. It's taters. Uh, but he is not. Uh, no matter. She wants some kink and there's no denying it. Oh, yeah. So from the song- Boot leather flashing and spur next the size of my thumb. This highborn hunter has tastes as strange as they come. Unbridled passion. I took the bit in my teeth. Her standing over me on my knees underneath. Right. That's cunnilingus in the woods, oh, Kyle. Oh, absolutely it is. I, so Not a very clean place there for is, it. There is definitely some uh, 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 S&M, uh, uh, I guess you'd say imagery in this song. Oh, yes. That's like double entendre as well. So, like, uh, uh, in case anybody anybody out there doesn't know, S and M is sort short for sadism and masochism. Really? Uh, yeah, and it refers to the uh, the act of receiving sexual pleasure from inflicting pain, which is sadism, or receiving pain, masochism. 
the imagery from this song, like you were just saying, falls right into place with that. So specifically, one of the big things in S&M is dominance, specifically female dominance, mm-hmm. uh, where, and like where he refers to the young woman as a queen sitting high on the throne. She takes control of the scene almost immediately. Yeah. Even the title of the song, Hunting Girl, plays a sort of trick on you. First, it makes you think about how men are on the prowl looking for a hookup. They're hunting for girls. But then it flips that around and you realize the girl was actually the one hunting the man all along. It turns that traditional societal power dynamic around on you, which is a big theme in S&M. Yeah. He also specifically mentions, like you said, the riding crop with the handle of bone. Riding crops are a staple of the S&M scene. He also mentions leather twice, which is another S&M scene staple. Uh, he also mentions, like you said, the bit in the teeth. You know, obviously, cunnilingus is the first place your brain goes to. But there's also a subset, sort of, of S&M culture called pony play that uses the concept of horses and riders as a form of dominance and submission. Yeah, so fascinating. Right? Uh, uh, finally, I think he asked her to be discreet because he is lowborn and he's a lowborn so-and-so. Right. And she's a highborn lady. That fits straight into the narrative of the song, but it also fits into the idea that people who practice a lot of those S&M things want to keep it behind closed doors. Mm-hmm. They don't want society to know about it. They don't want anybody else to know about it because, you know, other people might judge them based on it. Uh-huh. I will say, yeah, I do enjoy the back and forth of the heavier and lighter guitars in this album, right. in this song. You don't appreciate the wordplay, though? Um, really? It's, it's not bad. You just explained it and you don't appreciate I did, it? I did explain it. Uh, yeah. It's a great song, and it's, this will not be the only time we have sexy time in the woods in this, on this record. Yeah, that's true. Comes up later again. <laughs> There's a lot of woodsy sex in this album. I know. It's great. Ring out solstice bells. Ring out solstice bells. This was the first song written for the record, and it was Anderson's pagan attempt at a Christmas song describing the druidic ceremonies that would take place around the winter solstice. A tradition that has been cannibalized by the Christians through the centuries to become their Christmas holiday. Yeah, and he specifically set out to write a hit song with this. Yeah. Uh, He told Song Facts in an interview, quote, I deliberately attempted to write, if not a pop song, at least a song that was catchy enough to be getting radio play and achieve something in the singles charts. Yeah. And he also said it was written for Songs for the Wood as a reference to the Winter Solstice Pagan Festival and the latter-day transplanted Christian notion of the biblical Jesus. But then the record company thought it would be or thought that we should release it as a Christmas single. After a futile attempt to record a simpler, catchier version, we reverted to the original recording, and it was released too late to make the top 10 charts. But it has remained a radio stable and radio playlist for Christmas ever since. See, that one caught me off guard. This must be one of those exclusively UK things. Yeah. Because as you know, I've been listening to Christmas music in my house for decades, sometimes starting as early as October. Well, I know what's coming up next year. Right. This is going in the mix. It's going, it? it's going right in there. And I don't believe that I ever heard this song outside this album. Uh, see if any of you recognize it. This 
is an acceptable use of flute in a rock and roll song. <laughs> I will give it. I will give it my stamp of approval, which is obviously the most important stamp of approval. Well, I did uh, for say, everybody else's opinions. Obviously, it, it doesn't work as a rock flute in this song. It works as a uh, merry, happy flute. Yeah, and that might be why I'm like, oh yeah, it's not too bad in this one. And I think this is probably the most commercially accessible song on the record, melody wise. It's catchy, kind of bounces along. You know, it's a great song, and I would love to hear it uh, more during the holidays and break up yeah. that monotonous Christmas joy with some druids and pagan crap. I definitely feel like. <laughs> I definitely feel like Just that saying. is something that does happen in the U.S. is there are a shit ton of Christmas songs and nothing else. You know what I mean? How, oh, I that's mean, it. Yeah. I mean, there's like two Hanukkah songs. There's two Hanukkah and songs. Then, there's Adam Sandler and another one. Yeah. And then there's like, they play like a couple of like kind of non-denominational like White Christmas or not White Christmas, uh, Let It Snow, which is technically not a Christmas song, yeah, okay. you know, and they play a couple others that are not technically Christmas songs, but <laughs> but they are Christmas songs. I would love to see a broader, like, winter holiday season catalog of, of Christmas songs. So that's or not, not a catalog of Christmas songs, a catalog of winter holiday songs. That's the holiday episode this year. That's, that's it right that's there. That's great. Non-denominational holiday or winter holiday songs. Right. I we're, love it. We're digging deep. Velvet Green. Velvet Green. Ye oldie side B opener. <laughs> this was one of the first songs I heard from this record, uh, as it is present on a number of compilations. Uh, and little did I know when I was 14 that this song is loaded with double oh, entendre. Yes. This song is totally about a romp in the English countryside. Some dirty outdoor sex. But this mask and all this lovely musicality, which I know you don't care for. There is something in this song that really bothers me. What's that? When Ian Anderson says, won't you have my company? Yes, take it in your hands. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole thing. It's, it's such a, a it's just the way he delivers that line and just the way that he, <laughs> well, you take it in your hands. So all the and lines. I like penis. Never. And I'm still like, no, Ian, I don't want that. Put never seal a, up your straining loins. Never a care with your legs in the air. It's Ugh. pretty much self-explanatory. Go down on velvet green with a country man, right? August's rare delights may be April's fool. April is, of course, nine months from August. Yeah. But he doesn't care because he's horny. And yeah. then the next line is, uh, but think not of that, my love, because I'm tight against the seam. <sighs> On golden daffodils to catch the silver stream that washes out the wild oat seed on velvet green. Silver stream. Right? Oats. That's exactly what you think it is. (laughs) Sounds like this. Now let me tell you that it's a lot of love just lost. And if we live for life, let's lie and trust. Just a quick public service announcement to anybody out there. If you are someone with a vagina and it is covered in something you would refer to as velvet green, 
please <laughs> seek medical help immediately. You have some kind of a weird infection. Something is wrong. You need to go talk to a doctor immediately. No, you come on. I, by the end of the song, he promises to spend the night with her, but sometime in the middle of the night, he ditches her. And she has to make the shitty Middle Ages walk of shame yeah. across Velvet Green. That's <sighs> what the Velvet Green is. It's a great song. There's superb mandolin playing on this song that really cuts through, but it is his flute that carries it somewhere else. His it definitely is, carries it somewhere else. It's so unique, though. It's so breathy, and he almost speaks through it, vocalizing through it that gives it a completely different texture than Peter Gabriel used to play the flute in Genesis. Uh, and when Anderson plays it, he has been described as a deranged flamingo with his very unique stance that Kyle hates. I, ugh, yeah, it's again, if you're going to hate it, just hate it. I hate it. Yeah. Again, there right. you go. Own it. Fell beast. Bam. You've drunk too much. Captain Morgan. Bam. You need it. more leverage for coitus. Bam. You can do all these things. That's when the leg goes up. The rest of the time to play the flute, you don't need that leverage. Maybe he does. Uh, then he's got weird lungs. His Maybe. lungs are where his, like, whatever lower intestines Maybe he needs are it to, to keep be. from falling over. Ugh, weird. Weird. The Whistler. The Whistler. Get ready. Oh, the Whistler. Here it comes. The song takes it way too seriously. I love it. This song is way too serious for what it is. What do you mean? It, this song does not feel fun to me at all. It's just, get ready for the whistler. Wow, I believe here it, it comes, is. Here it comes, and I'm ready to play. The, so, <laughs> so just, mm, no, go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. No, go, no, go ahead. No, while this last song had some very sublime flute playing, this song has the very athletic version of his playing. Uh, this song continues the themes already present on the album, but he continues to surprise. Uh, one of the very f- cool effects that they use on this song is the fact that the second and fourth lines of each stanza each stanza are actually being sung before the first and third lines are completed. So they kind of run together nicely. They're kind of overlapped. Otherwise, musically on this song, we get some great marimba playing from Barrymore Barlow. And also, I think this is where he plays the nakers and the tabor. Which, uh, very interesting instruments. Yeah. The nakers are a pair of earthen kettle drums uh, with animal hides stretched across. They are kind of the forerunners to the timpani. They originally a Middle Eastern drum and were adopted in Europe following the Crusades, you know, when we stole everything and went you know, back to England. Uh, a tabor is a portable snare drum, typically played with one hand or two drumsticks, and it is the predecessor to our modern tambourine. And here's a piece of the whistler that Kyle will not like. Got right, eh? <laughs> For this piece of the whistler. I have a fight. And it's typically uh, typically the case with an Anderson song. The song is about a traveling musician who falls in love with a girl in one of the towns that he's visiting. Uh, less about sex, more about him trying to just 
woo her. Although I do notice that this song comes, get it? Ha <laughs> ha! Right after a song about uh, boning in the woods. That's true. Uh, is this just the song the dude was singing while he was walking home? And he's whistling and then all hopped up because he just had an orgasm. He is quite petty. And then that poor lady had to walk from the last song, had to walk home all scratched up and sore on across velvet, the velvet green. Across the velvet green, yes. She's got whatever STD velvet green refers to now. Pacing. Pacing. Album pacing is always important. It is. Right? And so no different here. Okay. Uh, this song was released as a single and reached number 50 on the US charts in 1977. Hmm. You know, when punk was coming up. Yeah. Pibrach. Pibrach. Kappenhand. Kappenhand. Musically, it's kind of out of sorts with the record to some degree. Agree. Although they went to great length to recreate the sound of bagpipes using an electric guitar. They did. And for that, I respect them. Uh, Pibrach, in case anybody's curious, is a series of variations on a martial theme, a wild, irregular kind of music from the Scottish Highlands traditionally performed on the bagpipes. However, here they use some synthesizers, a pipe organ, and a guitar to make a really unique sound that mimics that. Yes. Yes, it's a, he used a reverse echo effect and yeah. he was able to get a semblance of the bagpipes, but the song is definitely louder and more electric than the rest of the record. Martin Barr is such a unique guitarist with a very original sound. He uh, joined the band in 68, stayed with them through every incarnation, smoothly adapting his style into the folk styling of this period and able to ramp it up into the electric sounds later of Crest of a Knave in 87. And he was with them uh, until after 50-some-odd years, he was asked not to return in 2017 for the reunion tour. That's fucked up. Which I think is pretty shitty to w- way to end the relationship. But we don't know what was going on behind the scenes. True. Fun little tidbit about Barr. His middle name is Lancelot. Oh. And I should have uh, done that with my kids. Yeah. Jacob Galahad. Connor Belvedere. Christian Gawain. <laughs> Belvedere. I think it makes a statement. I wouldn't, but, I gotta be honest with you, I wouldn't have chosen Belvedere. Really? Uh, Bedivere. Sorry, Bedivere. 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 Okay. Not I, I don't know. I was I like, have it. I typed out Bedivere and said Belvedere. I was like, Belvedere, you're thinking about sitting on your own testicles. <laughs> right now, you're thinking about sitting on your own testicles. Uh, not going to explain that one. You can go look that up on your own, listeners. Uh, but what Type else? in Belvedere's testicles <laughs> into Google. Yes, see please what do. And tell us what happens. Sorry, Matthew. Please continue. But what also makes a statement is a Barton, uh, Barton Barr's guitar playing on this song, like right here. So it is pronounced, and I don't have the Irish brogue for it. Maybe mm. Kyle does. It's a Peabrook. Peabrook. Right? So I don't know if that's right or not, but I'll, I'll give it a Yours sounds better. Peabrook. So years ago, when they would play this song live, it would act as an instrumental of sorts and an opportunity for Ian Anderson to take a break. So it was labeled on the album, P-Break, which is <laughs> clever and totally tracks with Anderson. P-Break. P-Break. Fire it at midnight. 
Oh, boy. It's a short little wrap-up song for the record, right? Yeah. Nicely tracks in with the rest of the album, and when you take the whole thing as one piece, it is the end of a very complicated day for this person. Yeah. Uh, This song finds him with his loved one, happy to be where he is, and grateful for the things that he has. It's the perfect summation. It's a wonderfully simple song, but still contains everything you love, or perhaps hate, about Jethro Tull. It sounds like this. At midnight, when the dogs have all been fed, a golden tomty on the mantel, a broken gun beneath the bed. There's just great joy in the simplicity. And before we wrap up, I'd like to revisit what I talked about at the outset of this episode. I said I became very ensconced in their music for a while. Uh, Probably lasted for like a year or two. Okay. Every couple of years, they would release a new album. And every time, I would like it less and less. Until I just stopped and wouldn't listen to them hardly at all for probably about 25 years. In preparation for this episode, I dove deep. I listened to a bunch of albums, new and old, and I started to realize something. I don't think I was ready for it. So let me explain. Take classical music. My feeling is that classical music isn't made for young people. There are some that really enjoy it, and at a young age, I suppose, but I don't think they get it. I don't think they can appreciate the level of skill that goes into making it or how hard it is to perform. And I'm sure there are exceptions, but it's generally speaking. And I think the same is true for a band like this. You can enjoy it, while you're younger, but I don't think you can appreciate the nuances of the music, the double entendre, the thoughtfulness that is put into it. It might be fun to listen to a flute guy, but there's just so much more that I think requires a thoughtful, patient, and seasoned ear to really appreciate what the band was trying to say on a record like this. And I think all these years later, I get it now. Like, I get it. I encourage you, don't be afraid of the rock flute or the medieval sounds, or him writing about farm life in the 14th century. Just take a trip and go there with him, because it could be a ton of fun, Kyle. I know that you wrote all of this without knowing... I did. ...that I do not care for Jethro Tull, and that really feels like a stab to the testicles. Uh, Couldn't have been any more specific. It's like I knew. (laughs) (laughs) Have we talked about this before? I don't feel like we have. But, so, here's, here's my thing to wrap up this album. Go listen to some Jethro Tull and make your own decisions on it. That to me is the most important part. Just because I don't enjoy something doesn't mean that other people should be like, well, he didn't enjoy it, so I'm not going to. Please, please, please go listen to it. And that works both directions. Like just because I like it doesn't mean you should. Exactly. Please go listen to this album and make your own decision. It's 49 minutes long. I don't think it's, it's even that it's long. It's not yeah. even an hour of your life. You can listen to it on a couple of drives to work or on a commute or whatever and and you know figure out whether you like these sounds or not. Figure out whether you think flute belongs in rock and roll or not. And then more importantly, let us know what as you think. As much as a fucking because, saxophone does. Cuz we right. <laughs> We want to know. We want to know what people think about this kind of stuff. We're we're trying to figure out what our fans like and what they don't like so we can start kind of 
saying, oh, they really like these things. Let's kind of direct the podcast in that direction. Or, hey, they hate these things. We're going to steer clear of this stuff. Or we're going to talk about it, but we're going to talk about it from a perspective of, you know, like we just did. Um, if you want to get in touch with us and let us know what you thought about this album, facebook.com forward slash audio judo. Uh, we are at audio judo on Twitter, at audio underscore judo on Instagram. And you, if you want to get in direct contact with us, info at audiojudo.com, you can email us. If you really want us to respond to you, info at audiojudo.com is probably going to be your best bet. And I know that's a little scary for some people because, oh my God, they're emailing me. I promise we won't sell that to anybody. We won't sell your email address to anybody to market to you. I don't even know how to do that. So I do, and I'm oh. not going to do it. <laughs> so that's Songs from the Woods. That's Songs from the Woods. I have to tell you, it's one of my favorite episodes to write and research, which I know you hate. No, well, fair enough. And I think I, I might come back to Toll somewhere down the road, but I might do a judo chop about it. Um, because it's so interesting. There's there's a lot of stuff to mine there. Um, and we have episodes coming from uh, the Doobie Brothers, yes. the Zombies, Green mm. Day, and Radiohead, so stay tuned Ooh, yeah. for that. And if you are interested in watching this podcast and seeing how ridiculously we look, or ridiculous we look when we talk, or just to watch Kyle make fun of Ian Anderson playing the flute, you can go to audiojudo.com and click on the YouTube link. Other than that, we will talk to you all in two weeks. Bye-bye, everyone. Got right, eh? It's the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>